Success Academy Charter Schools in New York City is surely the nation's most controversial charter school network. Founded by former city council member Eva Moskowitz, each year the 17,000 students who attend one of its 47 schools post eye-popping results on state tests, outpacing not only the rest of New York City, but even its most affluent suburbs. Yet critics fault the network for a punitive approach to student discipline and allege that it doesn't serve all families. In a new book, former journalist and educator Robert Pondicio spent a year embedded within a Success Elementary School to find out what's behind success at Success Academies and what lessons we can draw for American education broadly. I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Robert Pondicio, senior fellow at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and author of the new book, How the Other Half Learns, Equality, Excellence, and the Battle Over School Choice. You can find an excerpt from that book, a chapter entitled Come to Jesus, on the journal's website at educationnext.org. Robert, welcome back to the EdNext podcast. Thanks for having me, Marty. So I want to start out by asking you about the title, How the Other Half Learns, which is obviously a reference to how the other half lives. Uh, I wonder how many people are picking up on that reference and why you chose to make it. Well, well, you said it was obvious, Marty, but um, I, I'm not sure that it is. Um, as, as you may know, I think you know, I'm a, a, an unapologetic disciple of uh, E.D. Hirsch Jr. of core knowledge fame. So um, his, his effect uh, on my thinking about education has now extended to book titles. So I, I make cultural references that I assume people will know. Um, but How the Other Half Lives, uh, to your point, was a famous book by the muckraking journalist Jacob Rees. Over a hundred years ago, was it was about uh, the tenements and slums of New York City. I, I think there's a lot of photographs from that book that people know uh, and are iconic, but they may not realize what the source of them is. I mean, uh, pictures of you know children sleeping in in alleyways and in, in, among tenements in New York, for example. So you know, the 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 title was really an homage. I mean, I'm not going to you know paint myself as uh, any kind of Jacob Rees figure. Um, but the, the, the point, why, why that book looms so large in the American imagination is because it really uh, revealed to uh, well-off New Yorkers uh, the lives of people whose lives they dimly understood, if at all. So my, my hope uh, is that how the other half learns can, can do in some small way a little bit of that. I mean, honestly, the book is really not really written for, for guys like you and me who spend our days working in this. It's It's really intended to be read by, I hope, uh, people who are you know, interested outsiders to education who are curious about uh, the, 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 the type of education that we're giving to uh, you know, less fortunate Americans. And having asked about the title, I'll next ask about the first chapter, which is not about success academies, despite that being the focus of the book, but rather is entitled The Tiffany Test. Yeah. Who was Tiffany and uh, why is that a lens that you bring to this book and presumably suggest that readers bring to it themselves? Yeah, I, I guess I, I need to give a little bit, uh, bit of my own backstory here. So I had a whole other career in, in the media world until I was nearly age 40. And then I signed up for a program uh, that some listeners may have heard of called the New York City Teaching Fellows, which is, is aimed at taking mid-career folks like me and, and getting them to commit to two years of, of service in inner-city uh, classrooms in, in New York City, where I was living at the time. So I signed up, uh, frankly, on a bit of a lark almost, um, to, to teach in the South Bronx. 
ended up teaching at what was literally, and I think still is, the lowest performing school in the lowest performing school district in New York City, PS 277, uh, in, in Monthaven, in the South Bronx. And in my second year in, in the classroom, there, there was a young lady there named Tiffany, um, that's her real name, um, and under the way we described kids, kind of in a, in a, in a shorthand there, I mean, then and, and now, kids would sit for their, their, their annual reading and math tests, and you would get a level one if you were below grade level, a level two if you were uh, said to be approaching grade level, level three if you were on, level four if you were above grade level. And, and this, by the way, was in, a, in an era in which uh, the tests were kind of famously debased, and um, it, was, it was no real prize to be on grade level, frankly. But be that as it may, um, four out of five kids in my school were, were below grade level and often quite below grade level in both math or, and reading. So here's Tiffany, who was, as we would have said, a double three. She was uh, on grade level, and I'm making air quotes as I say that, uh, in both reading and math. And, and this was a diligent, dutiful kid who would come to school every day in her uniform with her homework done. Um, uh, you know, I, I used to say that the building could fall down and Tiffany would be still sitting behind her desk, um, you know, waiting, waiting for us to do something. And, and when I pointed out to my special ed supervisor at the school that I was not really doing anything uh, for Tiffany, she said uh, offhandedly, but pointedly, she said, well, well she's not your problem. Why, in other words, why are you concerned about her? You've got so many other kids who are, uh, you know, delivering one or get, getting ones and twos. Tiffany is delivering the results that we want and expect. She's on grade level, so why are you even thinking about this kid? And, and it, it's not at me ever since because... You know, one, I'm not sure that uh, grade level meant much, uh, and, and this was a kid who was, I mean, it's hard to overstate this, just clearly bought into what we were trying to do. Uh, for whatever reason, growing up as, a, as a, the, the child of a single mother in the South Bronx was just dialed in and bought into the promise of education. And, you know, you, you could dismiss this as saying she was a rules follower. But, you know, this was a kid who was uh, clearly, uh, you know, buying into the promise of what education could offer her. And what were we doing for her in return? Nothing. I was quite literally told to ignore her. And it's just bugged me ever since. Uh, and, and this is not to say that I'm in any way dismissive of the impulse that we should be, you know, trying to get the ones and twos in the game, so to speak. But it just struck me as, frankly, unjust uh, that we would tell a kid, we wouldn't say this, obviously, but treat a kid uh, who was buying what we were selling as, as finished goods, in a sense. And, and so 10 years later, 15 years later, there were no charter schools when I was teaching in the South Bronx. Uh, along comes uh, Success Academy and Eva Moskowitz, and, and as I got to know those schools, what do I see in every single seat in those schools is, is Tiffany. In oh, virtually every seat is a kid, I mean, not literally Tiffany, obviously, but a kid like that. Um, you know, the culture of the school is such uh, that they either attract or, or create uh, kids who are bought in, and it's, it's, it's remarkable. So let's turn to your time at Success Academies, and what comes through very clearly in the book is the extent to which you really had unfettered access, at least to the goings-on at the particular campus that you observed. Uh, Success Academies has been known for being a bit, uh, I don't know if secretive is the right word, but certainly controlling about what people see, about what they do. How were you able to gain the level of access and, and trust that you obviously had? Yeah, thanks. Uh, I, I'm not sure that's entirely a fair criticism. Uh, you know, I think they have uh, been, as far as I can tell, reasonably open to, to, to letting uh, reporters in. The, the, the challenge, frankly, and this is not a criticism of education journalists, 
um, it's, it's a twofold challenge. One, uh, it's very, very difficult to spend the, you know, frankly, massive amounts of time uh, in, in a single school uh, that I spent for this book. And I'm not patting myself on the back and saying that. It's just, you know, that that's kind of what it takes uh, to really kind of get a feel and, and uh, you know, actor, I think I say this in the book, but like teachers and administrators are not actors if you spend enough time you know, they kind of show you who they are. But you, you just can't get that from a drive-by. Everybody kind of goes into show pony mode, so to speak. So you, you're not necessarily getting an authentic flavor of instruction by, by you know, cruising down the halls and spending a few minutes in, in each classroom. Um, but the, the larger point is, I, I think education journalism in general, ten, and look, frankly, ed reform in general, tends to focus mostly on the structures outside of the classroom. So I, you know, I, I sometimes joke that I, I work for an education policy think tank, but I'm, I'm basically a teacher when all is said and done. So when we have these conversations about you know, charter schools and data and teacher quality and whatnot, I tend to be the guy who says, can, can we talk about what the kids are doing all day? Because that matters too. Um, and having said that, for all of the, the coverage that Success Academy has attracted over the years, I just don't think that anybody has really focused on that. What do the kids do all day? Uh, so I think the answer to your question is, is um, you know, despite my just being, you know, so persuasive, Marty, um, I think uh, they, they may have been taken with the idea that um, there is a story to tell about what the kids do all day. Um, and, and so I just, interestingly enough, to kind of close this loop, the school that I spent most of my time in was literally across the street from where I was a student teacher in the Bronx and, and not far away, a few blocks from, from where I was a fifth grade teacher. Yeah, you write in the book that what happens inside classrooms remains largely beneath the notice of education policymakers and pundits, and that this indifference to curriculum and instruction, as you call it, is a significant impediment to progress. So let's turn to the curriculum and instruction at Success Academies. Presumably, to the extent that there are lessons from success's success in supporting students, that's where we might find them. So what's most distinctive about their approach? Well, two things. One, um, despite my intention or expectation to, to go in expecting to write a book about curriculum and instruction, I think I ended up writing more about school culture uh, than, than curriculum and instruction. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, I think the, 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 the curriculum is, is, is pretty good. I mean, honestly, um, like a lot of people in this work, I have my own preferred flavors and um, what success does might not have been my, my preferred flavor, but that's not a criticism. Uh, what, what they do works, works quite well. Obviously, it works well. Look, look at those test scores. But I think uh, the school culture is the thing that really uh, makes, it, makes it work. Uh, we, we can talk about that um, uh, a, a little bit later. If, if the intent is, okay, what are the lessons that we can draw from Success Academy, from any charter school that can serve as, as a lesson to, to the field at large, I mean, that's one of the reasons we have charter schools. You know, if you ask Eva Moskowitz, um, she will say, and I did ask her this, you know, what, what uh, of this model do you think can be exported to K-12 at large? Her answer was all of it. But my answer is, is not all of it, uh, you know, less than that because of, of some of these issues of, of culture uh, that are difficult to impose on, on any who do not voluntarily sign up for it. But the one lesson I, you know, I do think uh, applies and, and I hope will, will uh, apply is they've really reconfigured the job of, of the teacher in a way that makes a lot of sense. Now, look, this could be pure confirmation bias on my part, because I've written about this, including for Education Next in, in the past, about how we make teaching too hard for, for mere mortals. 
um, you know, and again, I'm a curriculum guy, I think the existence of a curriculum is a powerful thing in a school. Uh, in, in other words, at the risk of oversimplifying, I think we ask too much of teachers. We ask them to be expert instructional deliverers and expert instructional designers. I mean, there's this famous RAND study that a lot of people may know about where American teachers, virtually every single one, like 98%, uh, uh, say that they they spend time on the internet, uh, you know, gathering materials uh, that that either somebody gathered materials for them or they gather them themselves. In other words, they're not working from an established curriculum. Um, so at Success Academy, not one minute of a teacher's time is spent on Google and Pinterest um, with you know the empty plan book by their elbow, wondering what am I going to teach tomorrow. Um, you know, they, they have really, I don't want to say reduced, but, but codified the job in a way that the focus is, is, is purely on instructional delivery. Um, that, that does not mean that they're robots. That does not mean that they're reading scripts. They certainly are not. Uh, but they fetishize student work, for example. I mean, it's a feedback culture. They practice uh, giving lessons. Uh, they, they, they study student work. They give feedback. They spend time developing relationships with kids and families. All of those things are more valuable than, than spending you know, 10, 20, 30 hours a week online asking, what am I going to teach tomorrow? And, and I, I suspect quite strongly that it's one of the reasons that they're able to get uh, teachers who are deeply committed and you know, very energetic, but frankly, you know, quite inexperienced, uh, to get these results, they get them to competence quite quickly. That observation about the role of curriculum actually resonates for me as someone who teaches a lot of former teachers here at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. When we turn to questions of the quality of curricular materials, whether they're research-based or not, a lot of time the reaction that I get from former teachers is that I really didn't have a curriculum at all. Uh, yeah, it's not a exactly question right. of quality, it's whether it existed uh, or not. Um, and so that in and of itself may be a distinguishing feature that helps us understand what success is doing. Um, yeah, I, I'm a little bit loath to even say this out loud, Marty, because it will sound anti-intellectual. I mean, I'm a firm believer that there is good, better, best in curriculum, so to speak. But I really have come to believe that, that even, uh, I don't want to overstate the case, but I strongly suspect that the existence of even a suboptimal curriculum is better than none because it, it frees up the, the opportunity costs involved. It frees up teacher time to do all of these other things. Um, so yeah, we, we, should, we should really not settle for mediocre curriculum, but I, my, my, my hunch is the existence of any curriculum um, and getting teacher time, because that, that's the one thing we can't change, right? I mean, there's 24 hours in a day, you can't get more. Um, by, by focusing the job of teacher on instructional delivery and, and diagnosticians, so to speak, making them diagnosticians, I just think we'll get further faster. So let's turn to the culture at Success. Uh, that comes through throughout the book, but one of the places it's on display is in the excerpt we ran in Education Next. Yeah. That chapter is titled, Come to Jesus, and that refers to an attempt to provide a come-to-Jesus moment uh, for the parents of kindergartners, if I recall correctly, yep. really saying that we need to increase the urgency of making sure that these students are ready to move to the next grade. Tell us a little bit about that moment and, and about Success yeah. Academies more broadly. 
It was, it was um, I mean, kind of a how I got that story story. Um, I just happened to be there for this meeting, and there's this wonderful kindergarten teacher at Bronx One, Success Academy Bronx One, named Carolyn Siskowski. I just found myself coming back to her room over and over again. She was just, you know, a terrific teacher, this warm and engaging presence, and just enjoyed being in her room. And also, you know, a good example of, of what success uh, wants their teachers to be like, since she's a so-called lab site teacher that other teachers come to, 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 to learn from. So one afternoon, I think it was in January, uh, she, she gave this uh, meeting for the entire uh, kindergarten uh, class, the parents. And, and it was kind of interesting, Marty, because on the one hand, you know, it's, it's an emotional moment uh, in, in the book where she, you know, she reduces herself to tears, uh, you know, um, talking about uh, how kids are not uh, meeting their benchmarks. And, and, and it, was, it was deeply moving. And, and then a funny thing happened. I, I went home that night and I started transcribing because I was recording her, her meeting on my, my, on my phone. And I went home and I started transcribing the meeting. And I, suddenly I became aware, oh, my Lord, the stuff that came out of her mouth. And what I mean by that is, there, there was, you know, the, the, her words were were aggressive and hectoring, but, but that's not the way it felt um, uh, when I was there. It felt, you know, almost plaintive or pleading, like she was, you know, be, uh, almost begging the parents to, to you know, to, to to step up and and be more involved. And, and that's when it occurred to me it was a bit of a Rorschach test. In other words, you, you could, absent knowing her tone, um, you could view this like, who, who is this, you know, 20-something teacher? Who is she to read the riot act to these, you know, these parents who are all low-income people of color whose lives, you know, she can't really uh, understand? Um, and and as I think I say in the book, I mean, this, is, this was the moment where, at least in my mind, you could take either view of this. It will either confirm every suspicion you have about so-called no-excuses school culture and, and um, you know the, the kind of the, 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 the cluelessness or, or tone deafness of it, of it, or or you can view it as, and frankly, as I tend to view it, as as really more of of an attempt um, to to get the parents on board and and, and you know communicate that sense of urgency. Uh, it, it really is both in, in a sense, uh, which is you know one of the reasons that you can't I think impose this culture on the unwilling. Um, you know, you, 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 you can't have, uh, I mean, if you, if you had, for example, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, um, you know, an expensive private school, a kindergarten teacher reading the riot act to, to parents saying, look, you're not doing your part and you're not reading six books a, uh, a week to your kids and you're not sending in the reading logs. And, you know, uh, and another teacher in that same meeting was like, well, you should give your, you know, your kids time reading tests at home. I mean, there'd be an insurrection, but 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 in the context of this school in that moment, it felt you know not just authentic but caring. Yeah, that's interesting because I think that's what came through to me as most distinctive about success from your reporting as well. If you think about a lot of the uh, similarly oriented charter management organizations or networks, uh, they articulate high expectations for parents uh, and their degree of involvement. But it's not clear that they actually follow through or, or, or that there's uh, a lot behind that. They sort of uh, take parental involvement where they can find it, but it's not demanded. But I, I feel as if at success, that requirement is, is more, uh, I don't know, more authentic. and Yeah, I, I think they mean it. Um, and I, you know, I think we've both been in this business long enough, Marty, that we know that a lot of these so-called no excuses charter schools, and I keep saying so-called because nobody embraces that label anymore. Uh, for complicated reasons. But back in the day, uh, and maybe they still do, uh, most of these schools 
uh, asked parents to sign a contract, but it was really more of an aspirational uh, statement. You know, here, this is who we are, these are our values, and by signing this, you know, you're, you're saying that you, uh, you, uh, you, you are signing up for them too. Um, Success Academy seems to mean it. Uh, you know, they, they, they remind parents, I mean, I, I've, I've heard some staff uh, refer to it as harassing parents to remind them of the, the, the obligation that they made. In, in Eva Moskowitz's memoir, uh, she tells a story about um, uh, contacting a grandmother uh, because the mother was not uh, living up to her, her end of the bargain, so to speak, and being diligent on behalf of her child and reading every night and whatnot. Uh, so, um, you know, they, they, they do seem, it has a, a, a very well-articulated adult culture, and it's, it's aggressively policed. Uh, you know, they famously send report cards home about the parents. Um, so parents, you know, are, are, are um, you know, are, are evaluated by, by school staff um, for, for their level of commitment and their follow-through. It's quite remarkable. And one of the implications of that is that success academies may not be for everyone. And a way that comes through in your reporting is through a story you tell at the end of the book about a potential student not yet enrolled in success named Darren Wilson. Can you tell us a little bit about what we learned from his experiences? Yeah, and this is a little bit controversial because, frankly, while I, I've not been in touch with um, with, with Eva Moskowitz or, or anyone in an official capacity at, at the network, I've, I've come to understand that they're they're not happy about this. Um, so, you know, the the and this has been hiding in plain sight. Let's be let's be clear about that. So, you know, there there is an assumption that because Success Academy, like every charter school, every oversubscribed charter school, admits students by lottery. That therefore it is a purely random assortment, first come, first serve, etc. Well, well, that's not the way it works. So, you know, in in the April lottery, um, you you get there, there are three thousand kids uh, get a seat. Um, six or seven thousand are told, sorry, you know, no room at the inn. And then there's another six thousand or so who are placed on the so-called likely list. Uh, one of those was this uh, the young man that you refer to, a five-year-old kid named Darren Wilson. Um, but what's really important is the next step. So, so one, you win the lottery, or, or you're put on what they call the likely list, what most of us would call a, a waiting list. Then you're invited to a welcome meeting, which is, and to, to Success Academy's credit, they could not be more clear or emphatic about their values. I mean, this is, this is uh, who we are, this is, this is what we stand for, this is what we will not stand for, is, is, is the message. And without question, it does uh, scare off some parents uh, who say, hmm, you know, this, this may not be, be for me. But that's not even the end of it there. Then, then you have to confirm your interest via email, then there's paperwork you have to fill out. Then you come to a uniform fitting, uh, whether you're admitted or just on the likely list, like uh, the, the, the Wilson child. Uh, and then finally, before kindergarten, a few days, you, you come to a dress rehearsal. Um, and, and significantly, at every step along the way, um, if you do not show up and do not communicate with the school um, that you have made other plans, uh, you get dropped. So the upshot of this is by the time kindergarten starts in August, um, your odds of getting into Success Academy are really not one in six, but one in two, uh, if, you, if you do the math. Um, and, and what you end up with is, is a group of parents who, are, um, who have voted with their feet not once but several times and are clearly either um, seeking out uh, the culture that Success Academy uh, has to offer or are willing to, to, to go along with it. 
because um, it is, you know, it, it deeply, in, uh, it injects itself into the home, as it were, in terms of parental expectation. Uh, but this one young man, Darren Wilson, uh, he was number, I think, 106 on the waiting list. Uh, and spoiler alert, he gets in. Uh, which was remarkable because you know if you think about um, you know the the expectations and almost the mythology that's grown up around Success Academy, you would think well you know parents must be uh, you know, uh, willing to kill each other to get their kids in this school, and then it turns out so in the case of uh, this school Bronx One, think of it this way: there are 90 slots, then there is 105 kids on the waiting list, and then there's that kid. <clears throat> so that kid ended up getting in, which which tells you something about the rigorous enrollment process and the, you know, what I describe as the self-sorting uh, that goes on for, for, for parents who have to you know, really be committed. To, to, you don't find yourself at Success, at Success Academy by accident. I wasn't going to tell listeners that Darren ultimately got in. I was going to tell them they had to buy the book to find out. So you just <laughs> okay. missed an opportunity there. I myself. Uh, but you present this story and the window it gives into Success Academies without damning the network as a result. Uh, and so help us understand that. Well, because I, I think it's, and, and this I think I, I gather is what Success Academy is, is a little cranky about, and, and they're not wrong. In other words, if, uh, if the news value in the book, um, so to speak, is that they have this elaborate enrollment process that does end up being a de facto self-selection engine, no one should conclude from that that that's the answer. That that, in other words, that Success Academy is adding no value there. They are merely sorting. Now, keep in mind, Marty, that for years the assumption about these schools has been that they are creaming. In other words, that they are somehow, you know, through nefarious means, uh, identifying the easiest to teach the kids who, you know, like like my former fifth grader Tiffany, are going to deliver those good test results no matter whether you ignore them or not. Well, that's clearly not true, and and it would be unfair to Success Academy to suggest, as some have, that the only thing that's going on here is is a sorting mechanism. Um, you know, it's the starting line. It's not it's not the finish line. And as I think I note in the book, it, you know, that they actually outperform gifted and talented programs in New York, which literally do handpick their kids, and they outperform you know affluent suburban school districts. Uh, like Jericho and Long Island and Scarsdale, where they might as well hand select because you know the average price of a home is well north of, of a million dollars. So it's you know it's it's a screen for uh, for, for for affluence as, as it were. So um, what, while I I hope the book is a little bit more nuanced and does not uh, suggest in any way that that the only thing that's going on is is sorting, uh, I, I think it's just dishonest to suggest that that doesn't play a role. Uh, because it does set the, the, the conditions in the classroom uh, that enable kids to really be pushed and, and, uh, to, and, and engage deeply and, and for parents to be on the same page. I mean, the way to think of this is you've suddenly got a school culture in a place like the South Bronx or another urban community where you'd be least likely to expect one, where every adult in a child's life is, is pulling in the same direction the teachers, the administrators, the parents, um, your friends' parents, etc. Uh, to me, the, 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 the culture really is a game changer. So let's talk about the book's reception so far. It's been out for less than a month, but it's already generated a lot of conversation. Just prior to the book's release, you wrote in an article for The 74 that I hope you hate it, uh, is what you <laughs> yeah. said about the book. Uh, if that was a sincere aspiration, you have to be a bit disappointed. The New York Times book review, Dale Rusikoff calls it unsparingly honest, gives it a 
positive review. Doug Lamov, I saw, wrote on Twitter, if there's a finer, more insightful, more challenging, more honest book about us, our society, and our schools, I haven't read it. So are you disappointed? Um, well, I mean, that, that, that's an awkward question, Marty, because, I mean, it would be ungracious of me to pretend to be disappointed with, with you know, people saying nice things about me and, and, and my level of candor and honesty. Um, I, I suppose I could write another piece right now that says, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed that you like it because that means you're only paying attention to the stuff you like and you're not, you know, allowing yourself to be challenged uh, by, by, by the other stuff. And, and again, I don't want to be unfair or unkind, um, but I do think, you know, in the same way that that meeting we described earlier is a bit of a Rorschach test, I think this book, frankly, as a whole, is a bit of a Rorschach test. My assumption was it would challenge people's orthodoxies, and I, I, I wonder if it's not doing the opposite, if it's merely reinforcing them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in other words, if, if you are you know, convinced that Eva Moskowitz is the devil and, and you've been convinced all this time that she's up to, you know, to, 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 to no good, well, then you can see evidence that confirms your bias there, um, you know, that, that uh, they do engage in, in uh, self-sorting. I mean, I, I want to be careful. I, I don't think it's fair to describe what they're doing as cherry-picking families, but I think they're creating a mechanism for, for committed families to, you know, sort themselves, as it were. And And look, if you really don't like... Um, you know, pedagogically, kids being asked to slant, as they say, you know, sit up, track the speaker, etc. If the sight of kids marching in two lines in elementary school uh, suggests to you the school-to-prison pipeline, well, then you're going to see that and you're going to think, well, that's no, that's no good. Um, on the other hand, but if, if that's all you're seeing, then you're not seeing the deep investment that, that, that the teachers have in, in, in their kids, um, you know, the, the, the absolute uh, authentic commitment uh, that the that the staff has, uh, you're not seeing the good results. Uh, honestly, you're not seeing uh, the parents who are saying, "No, I want this." You know, this is how I raise my child at home, etc. That's there. That's there too. And and by the same token, if you're a you know big fan of what uh, Eva Moskowitz is doing, but you're you've been buying the idea that hey, it's it's a complete and total random assortment lot lottery, and we should do be able to do this for every kid. Well, I think there's good evidence in the book that that's that's a nuance averse version of things that be really hard-pressed uh, to do this for every child. That's in there, too. My guest today has been Robert Pondicio, Senior Fellow at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute and author of How the Other Half Learns, Equality, Excellence, and the Battle Over School Choice. You can find an excerpt from the book on our website at educationnext.org. Robert, congratulations on the book, and thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks, Marty. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on whatever platform you use so that you don't miss an episode. And especially if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.